0: And thank you so much for tuning in. Good morning, everyone. Happy Friday. I hope everybody's had a wonderful, wonderful week. So some really good questions and a topic, of course, posted by Lisa, the as I mentioned in the group, I will go into with my thoughts and my opinions. So first question we have this week, can you eat too late in the evening? And it's one of those, isn't it? It depends. Realistically, you don't wanna be in too close to bedtime. You don't want to be eating and then going straight to bed. You want to be leaving adequate amount of time for your body to digest the food, because in essence, if you're eating um, a substantial meal and then going to bed, it will downregulate your melatonin. But you'll also feel a little bit uncomfortable in yourself. Now, there was always that, oh, don't eat eat past 6 (laughs) p.m., Like I don't even know where 6 p.m. came from because your body doesn't have this internal clock. Your body has no idea what time of the day it is. Your body becomes, your hunger regulation anyways, habitual at the regular times in which you eat. So as I mentioned last week, if you regularly eat at like 8, 12, 6, your body remembers those times. So your hunger hormones become habitualized to those times. That's why eating at the same sort of time over the weekend is one hugely beneficial habit that many people can help. Uh, Many people can follow over to help with potential overeating that we see of an evening at the weekend, likely coming from an over-restriction. But eating too late in the evening. Now, where that 6pm potentially comes from is likely due to some of the insulin sensitivity that we have later on in the day. So we all suffer with a reduction in insulin sin- signaling as our day progresses, right? And we know when we're eating, insulin rises. And when insulin rises, there is glucose circulating in with- within your bloodstream. When that glucose is circulating and that insulin is risen, that signals what's known as GLUT4 transporters, who are like little men, and they open the door and they transport the glucose from your bloodstream through to the muscle surface and cell membrane, therefore regulating your blood glucose and your insulin. As the day progresses and as we use energy, like at work, and remember energy is not just moving in terms of steps, it is mental energy, we all do suffer with some insulin sensitivity later on in the day. So that just means that when you're eating, you haven't got that spike in insulin, which then signals it still happens, but it's just not as prevalent as it is first thing in the morning. Which is why those who intermittent fast would largely benefit now from doing it between like eight and three. However, there's nothing wrong with eating later on in the day. Absolutely not. It's just how you feel when you're going to bed. Now, one of the things that has been shown in the research that's pretty cool actually is what's known as a postprandial walk. So, as I mentioned, that insulin sensitivity drops off later on in the day. Now, irrespective of whether or not you have ate exercise, brings about the same response in terms of the management of your blood glucose and that signaling of the GLUT4 transporters. So if you do find that you're eating quite late in the day, and perhaps that's around some of your commitments and it's like a one-off that day, just go for a quick 10-minute walk and help with the digestion process and help you um, help with the blood glucose management. And then, of course, more of a, a relaxed state when you get to bed. But you really don't want to be eating and then half an hour later going to bed so if you can make that time and that separation that would be really beneficial <laughs> right second question how many times a week is too much for socializing and it's it's one of those isn't it like i think if you've ever been exposed to diet plans where you've ever been handed a plan to follow You now have this association with going out as being quote unquote bad. And if you're going out, it's going to send you off track and you feel like you're doing something wrong. And that comes from this limiting belief that A, you have to be perfect because you've followed this plan before. But then because you followed a plan, you haven't got the trust in yourself. You haven't got the confidence internally to go out and sit mindfully so there's like wild eating patterns that come before going out like an over restriction as an example like when i'm going out tonight it's going to send me off track so i'll just restrict all day but actually that restriction all day brings about more overeating and for a lot of people giving permission to eat before you go out actually reduces the amount you eat and you can literally go out every single day and one of my clients went out every single day last week. She went out every evening last week, but it's being realistic with your expectations and always compromising, never sacrificing. And it doesn't have to be a sacrifice of your social events and your connection, nor does it have to be a sacrifice of say like a fat loss goal, but it just means that you're going to have to be putting in a little bit more conscious effort with a compromise and one of the most amazing things that I heard this weekend when I went to level up in the conference, it was phenomenal, right? The first person you need to be accountable to is yourself. Like if you're not accountable to yourself, then you can't be accountable to anybody else or any goal. However, if you are going out socialising and you are going out, say, four times that week, you look at compromising. Because Even if you were out four times, realistically, over the course of the week, you still have the capacity to make 21 minus 4, 17 meals. Even if you were out half of the week, you've still got capacity to make, let's call it 11 meals. So if you went out for dinner and evening meal every day in the week you still have the capacity to manage your breakfast. You still have the capacity to manage the weekend. You still have the capacity to manage your expenditure, to manage your mindfulness. And when you're looking at compromising, there has to be some give and take, right? If your goal is fat loss and setting realistic expectations for that week, knowing that your deficit isn't going to be as high. So you look at keeping your breakfast light, but you look at giving yourself unconditional permission to eat that breakfast. So Around that, it could just be a big bowl of Greek yogurt and some berries, not your usual porridge. And then when you're going out, say if you're going out twice, you've got to look at compromising there and asking yourself, like, what's the most important part of me socialising? Is it the food or is it the social connection? It's likely the latter of the two, but it would be the former of the two had you followed a diet plan because it was probably the only thing that brought you joy. But as you start to work through your relationship with food, as you start to build on the food neutrality, as you start to lessen the psychological noise and the battle that you have with this like good and bad food, you start to acknowledge that food is joy, memories, fun, fuel, and it doesn't have this novelty anymore. The novelty has increased so much and people strive for social events when they are over-restricting and that over-restriction doesn't just look like calories, that looks like food choices as well. So like only eating certain food on certain days, not allowing food to be cooked by others, um, not cooking with things like olive oil, uh, meticulously tracking calories, only eating quote-unquote clean food. That's a restriction and the intent behind that action is largely imprisoning. So then when you're going out socially, you're not at all empowered, you've got this novelty around food, so then that does heighten the overeating because you have restricted not just with your intake, with your choices. So then all of a sudden you're going out and you're seeing burgers, pancakes, um, pizzas, and because you're not used to eating that food, you want it all and you want it all now which then heightens how much you're going to eat. So working through your relationship with food reduces the novelty of certain foods. And it also allows you to sit more mindfully. It allows you to sit with more awareness of what you can do. And it goes from being imprisoning to something that's pretty empowering. So you're going out and you're making um, compromises, your simple swapping. So say, if you do want to go out and have a burger, um, but you're going out five times that week, perhaps opting to have a salad with it and not the fries. And that's a simple compromise, isn't it? Because you're getting the vast amount of enjoyment from the first bite of the burger. But also alongside that, you're sitting with the presence, you're looking at the menu and you're really studying it and you're asking yourself, like, how do I want to feel? Like, how do I want to feel in the morning? Just simply asking that question. Do I want to feel like I deprived myself here and I isolated myself? Because again, the isolation can come from a food choice. If you sit there and just order the salad because you think you've got to order the salad, but you're so preoccupied by food that you're not engaging with those around you that's not going to make you feel great in the morning you're going to feel restricted so it's striking the balance between a sacrifice and a compromise how do I want to feel tomorrow I want to feel liberated I want to feel like I had a really good uh, really good evening I connected I chose something that aligned to my goals and that doesn't just look like eating healthy food quote unquote in inverted commas there guys because a healthy decision is not defined as just eating protein, as just eating um, fibre, as just eating vegetables. A healthy decision is one that is true to you. And a healthy relationship with food is where you sit without judgment, with complete awareness, with presence, where your intention behind your your action is nourishing, it's empowering. And that brings about the clarity, that brings about like decision-making, with with, uh, with the delayed gratification. So a lot of people sit and they strive for instant gratification because it's come from this over-restricted approach. And of course, we've got the association of going out being quote-unquote bad. So we're breaking down a lot of barriers here. And when you start to break down the barriers and you get to the root, it's like actually it goes from feeling like a chore where you're studying menus, like what should I have, what should I have, what should I have, Instead, it's like something that's pretty cool where you can go out and you're like, yeah, I'm going out here and I'm going to compromise. I know that today I have kept my breakfast a little bit lighter, kept my lunch a little bit lighter. I've been out for a walk. I've stayed hydrated. I've done my journaling and I've set my intentions for this evening. I know what's most important to me. And again, it's the accountability to yourself instead of just trying to wing it and falling to the path of least resistance where it's like well going out's always sending me off track so I might as well go off track and god it's Friday night tonight so that will spiral over the weekend but is it fact that going out sends you off track no Mm -mm. that's a belief that people hold and a belief that people hold from over restrictive backgrounds and a lot of the time there's this striving for control and the minute you feel like you're gonna the minute you feel like you're giving yourself unconditional permission to eat you feel like you're losing control but actually the loss of control comes from meticulously trying to control everything and striving for perfection because perfection doesn't exist it's a perception that you hold so if you're like perfectly trying to control your calories and perfectly trying to control your your socializing you will feel a loss of control and you will spiral. There's only a certain amount of time you can have this perception of control before it becomes so encompassing that you then lose control. And it is the biggest challenge for people. Like breaking down that barrier of fear to then embrace imperfection, to actually stop looking outwardly and start looking inwardly and be like, well, what can I do today? What simple swaps can I do? If I usually have granola on my yogurt, I'm pass on the granola today because I'm going out this evening. If I usually have a bagel with um, a salad, can I double up the protein? Can I double up the salad and pass on the bagel? And instead, when you're trying to control it, you're so preoccupied by food that you can't make a decision because your clarity is so low because your emotional um, response to the going out is really high because you feel like you're doing something wrong. So then what happens? You spiral and lose control. You either over restrict and over consume and then wake up in the morning with unsolicited body bashing thoughts. Or you just take the path, a path of least resistance. But like, well, what's the point? We're going to try So again, striking that balance yeah, between sacrificing and compromising. And if you want to go out five times a week, that's absolutely fine. It just requires more conscious effort with your compromising. You're not sacrificing going out. You're not sacrificing a fat loss goal. You're compromising. And being realistic with your expectations, knowing that that week, say if your deficit is like 20%, that week your deficit might be 10%. But that's where, again, you can still lose weight. You can still be losing body fat. If you look at what you can do instead of being like, well, what's the point this week? And improving your relationship with food becomes this empowering state psychologically where you don't judge your whole success based on fat loss anymore. Because whilst fat loss is important to you, you've recognized that having a a healthy mental and physical relationship with your body and with food is the most important. And if you didn't lose any weight that week, As an example but you were less preoccupied by food you were less food focused you were more present at social events um you moved your body you compromised as best as you could you felt content with your actions you were very self-aware i would go as far as to say that's healthier than swinging the pendulum too far and sacrificing social events or sacrificing fat loss Health is not just losing two pounds on the scales, even though Slimming World tells you that. And success comes in so many different forms. So don't fall at the expense of societal norms and pressures that if you're working towards fat loss or if you're working to improve your health, that you need to lose X amount of weight every week. I've got a client who has been in a fat loss phase now for a good few weeks and she's lost a big kilo on the scales. But she's lost body fat because her waist has come in Her hips have come down and actually her training performance is increasing. She's going out socially, she's enjoying it and she's feeling good in herself. So it's that balance, isn't it? And understanding that this is your journey. Like not trying to copy somebody else's, not trying to mimic what somebody else does. And when you can build the tools on your tool belt to navigate your life, your commitments on a very individual level, you then lessen the noise as well of diet culture. You then lessen this, oh, I should be doing that. I should be doing that. Like I'm I'm improving my health, so I should be eating a salad. Says who? Because what is eating that salad gonna do for you if you want the burger? Is it gonna leave, leave you feeling preoccupied? And if you had the burger with the salad, would that then reduce the potential of overeating that we see in the evening if you are not psychologically satisfied? Yeah. And with that as well, the compromise could also look like not drinking alcohol if you're going out a lot. Because we know that there's calories in alcohol. Um, another one. Is cardio better than weight training? Um, so obviously I was, a, again, I'm going to talk about it, level up this weekend. So I'm just going to put my notes because there was an incredible, incredible talk. Just bear with me, folks. Bear with me. De-de-de-de. Richie Carwan. Oh, Dr. Richie Carwan. Muscle and exercising for lifelong health. Right. Okay. And his opening was people with the most muscle have an 81% lower risk of developing heart disease compared to least muscle. Hmm. So his talk was very much on coronary heart disease and um, prevention with muscle mass. So interestingly, this client and I had a really good back and forth conversation and her thought process with cardio being better came from the era in which she grew up with. So it's very much like Kate Moss, that skinny is sexy. So trying to control body image to get to the smallest size. And it was when cardio was a big thing back then, wasn't it? Like cardio bunnies and a lot of females associated the gym with getting quote unquote bulky. I mean, still waiting to get bulky. I've been weight training all of these years. I'm still waiting for it because it doesn't happen, folks. It does not happen. Um, But her assumption was that cardio was so much better than weight training. Now, firstly, the first thing I want to say is exercise and the benefits you get from exercise far outweigh that of calorie burn, far outweigh. And I think that opening statement that I just started with from Dr. Ritchie about the most muscle and heart disease, I think that in itself just proves how important exercise is. It really is important now. There are obviously an infinite amount of different exercise regimes, routines, things that we can be doing. However, if there was one exercise or one pattern of movements or one, one like stimuli that would cover all bases, if I was to blanket approach, I would say resistance training. Now, the main reason I say that is because as I mentioned with the first question, right? And this flows very nicely onto the heart disease. Muscle mass is the biggest site of glucose disposal. Right? So if you're holding more muscle mass, you're able to regulate more glucose. So taking the, the glucose out of your bloodstream and it will help with, the, it'll help with the regulation because it will be delivered to muscle surface and cell membrane. So, muscle mass is so important. It plays into so much of the metabolic health, especially females, perimenopause, menopause, as we see with the the reduction in estrogen. And you will suffer with some lean mass loss. Now, lean mass, I'm referring to as muscle mass. We all do have some anabolic resistance as we age. The more muscle mass we have, the more uptake of protein can help mitigate some of the anabolic resistance. And I will go off on a slight tangent as well because I went into some more research this week with creatine monohydrate. So most most muscle and least body fat have a 68% lower risk of dying from heart disease. So higher muscle mass, this is irrespective of body fat. Irrespective of body fat equals lower levels of dying from a heart condition. So muscle mass is protective it's but the muscle function however is more important than muscle mass so muscle quality is representative of how healthy the muscle is and i was talking to another client about this in terms of like the grip strength and the grip strength is how they determine the quality of your muscle irrespective of like the quantity of muscle you have um so with that the 41% lower risk of dying of heart disease with a healthy grip strength like really this is incredible isn't it these these figures just show the importance of holding muscle mass now there's alongside that with diabetes because we get we know that with diabetes there is insulin sensitivity so you've got this impairment to your glute transporters, transporters, right so you haven't got the signal in that then manages the blood glucose up your system to open the door. Yeah. So if you've got, if your resistance training, as I mentioned with that postprandial walk, if your resistance training, that signals the glute four transporters. So there is a reduction in diagnosis of diabetes. If you've got good quality muscle mass. So remember quantity is not uh, directly representative of quality. If you're like constantly injured, um, And they were saying like the cholesterol aspect of it. So, sorry, let me just pull this up again. Um, Do, do, do. Yep. Uh, So, the the other aspect that really benefits with holding more muscle mass is as we age, of course, as we age and we do lose that lean mass, There is higher risk of frailty, which means like there is more risk of falling. There's more risk of trips, but there's also a greater risk of things like osteoporosis, loss of bone mineral density. So the more we can mitigate that with holding more muscle mass, the greater chance we've got of ageing and adding quality to your life. And I think that is phenomenal, isn't it? Um, and then the one last thing was I just wanted to talk about here So, there was people who would be in people who were having sense fitted. So, There was a group of the group of participants that had stents fitted and then a second group of participants that were given exercise. Now, the exercise regime that they were given was 30 minutes of moderate stationary bike and. Three resistance training, right? So there was 101 male participants and they were aged 70 and above, and it was done for 12 months now. After the twelve months, the event-free survival of reduction in terms of coronary heart disease was seventy percent, but the reduction in terms of event-free survival with the exercise was eighty-eight percent. Because when we're having, of course, we know what happens when we're having the stents fitted. It goes within your, it goes within um, the area where there's like a lot of cholesterol, and it then balloons up. So it helps with the. With the management of the weather well, transportation, should we say, um, through that area. But holding the muscle mass and doing the exercise had 18% greater benefits. Tell me that's not just not blown your mind because it blew my mind. I was like, wow, wow. So we can be doing better, can't we, in terms of like, resistance training but it's striking the balance with doing enough that supports you but also the cardio aspect is important it is important so what the recommendation was 30 minutes per day of quote-unquote exercise and that is exercise like a brisk walk so you can talk but you can't sing or three intense sessions per week where you can't sing at all and you can't talk So it's like really getting your heart rate up. And of course, resistance training. Because whilst exercise is great, like cardio is great, you're not building muscle mass doing that. That's like improving uh, your VO2 max, which is also improved through resistance training. But going for a 30-minute walk every day is something we can all be doing, something we should all be doing. But then on top of that, stacking some resistance training And whether that is 15 minutes every other day to start with, it's so important to quality and quantity of your life. Um, Then, I just wanted to talk about this because I found myself in a bit of a rabbit hole with it. This week. (laughs) And I also asked... um, Emma story Gordon about it on Emma and Amelia on the EIQ Live, and I got their input as well, which I always value largely. So creatine monohydrate is the only evidence-based scientifically research-backed supplement. Creatine phosphate is found in our muscles. It's one of our energy stores, energy um uses, but It's only produced in really small form. We're supplementing with creatine monohydrate. It helps with endurance. It helps with muscle mass. Helps with some amount of energy. But, and okay, so if you're resistance training, you're perimenopause, you're menopausal, I was thinking like that would have so many benefits to menopausal women because they lose this lean mass, right? Yeah, that would make so much sense. Research. It's there. Let me tell you, it is there. However, it what they're saying is a little bit more than that of. So, like on average, I say to females, take three grams, males, five grams. But with the menopausal women, it's 0.07 per kilo of lean, per kilo of body weight. So if you're like 60 kilos, it's like 4.7 grams. <laughs> Quick maths. I'd already done that one before. <laughs> um But there was also some really cool research around how it helps with brain fog, which I thought was phenomenal. So I've mentioned this to a client who I know does suffer with brain fog because it's one of those symptoms associated with menopause. So I just wanted to bring that up because... If you're resistance training, you're perimenopause, you're menopause. And like this client in particular, she is a weapon and she trains like four times a week and she's super, duper strong. Um, like she brings me so much joy when I watch her with her training performance. So creatine monohydrate, though, is really something we should all be supplementing. Really, for resistance training, because creatine phosphate isn't found in, in a large A large quantity within our muscles so it does help with that muscle mass and it's not going to get you bulky because it's impossible to get bulky unless you're taking anabolic steroids but uh, you would not be taking anabolic steroids with me because that's not something that I advocate Um, and on average you build like 0.5% muscle mass per month and that is progressively overloading in a decent calorie surplus so More doing it for the health aspect, as I mentioned, reducing risk of coronary heart disease, reducing risk of um, type 2 diabetes, helping with anabolic resistance as we age. It's got muscle mass is the best thing you can have to support your health. Irrespective of the amount of body fat you have, as I said, the more muscle mass you have, it reduces your risk of dying from coronary heart disease. And these are the biggest killers of people in the UK at the minute which leads me very nicely into what um lisa shared within the group now <laughs> i read through the st- i read through it i did so the headline was weight loss can put type 2 diabetes in remission for at least five years in inverted commas and what it says, obesity is a major driver of type 2 diabetes. People with high BMI are up to 80 times more likely to develop the condition with those with a BMI of less than 22. Okay. Um, and weight loss can put type 2 diabetes in remission for at least five years. New research has been found. So the study from the Diabetes Remission Clinic trial suggests that losing weight and keeping it off can help reverse diabetes, a serious condition that increases the risk of heart disease, stroke, high blood pressure, narrowing the blood vessels, and nerve damage. Correct. Obesity is a major driver of type two diabetes. With research finding people with a high BMI or up to 80 times. Yeah, I've just said that. Okay. In the latest study, a quarter of people are in remission from, di- from diabetes two years after starting a low calorie diet. Were still in remission three years later. Great. They no longer needed to take medication to manage their blood sugar levels. Amazing. Of the two hundred ninety eight people who took part in the study, funded by Diabetes UK, so there is some bias in there. Half received standard diabetes care for their GP, from their GP and half were put on a diet from support from health professionals. The diet consisted of liquid meals totaling 800 calories lasting for between 12 and 20 weeks with support from a nurse or dietitian to maintain weight loss. The participants stopped taking medication for type 2 diabetes and blood pressure at the beginning of the program. It was reintroduced as necessary. At the end of the original two-year study, 95 of the 149 people on the weight loss program agreed to take part in an extension study lasting three years. The new data shows that of this group of 95 people, 48 were in remission at the start of the extension study, and 23% were still in remission three years later. Brilliant. The proportion of people in remission five years after the original study started were three times that of the control group who just received the GP care. Those put on the diet and offered support had bigger improvements. Now, that's the biggie. Okay, so you can just read this and be like, well, people just put in an 800 calorie diet and that reversed type 2 diabetes. They had support. So, as it said, they had support from a dietitian and a nurse. Now, realistically, if you've got a high BMI and you've got type 2 diabetes, you're just putting them into a calorie deficit. And we know the mechanism behind just implement a calorie deficit is not that simple. Not when you consider human behaviour, which is why there are coaches like me, which is why there are evidence-based coaches who offer the support outside of just eat this, who offer... The emotional support, who help build tools and tool belts, who help with self-awareness, who help with confidence, with self-worth, with self-esteem, because we know health is not just nutrition and exercise. It is seven facets, spiritual well-being, emotional well-being, financial, environmental. There's seven facets to health, basically. But in essence, what this is saying is those who lost weight with the correct support were in remission that's fine there was a guy in scotland who went to his gp and wanted to lose weight and his gp said to him don't eat so he didn't eat for a year he didn't eat anything for a year and he lost weight because the mechanism behind it is that simple i think however a lot of the time people can get targeted by things like this because you can see like the the aspect and the implications of a relationship with food because everybody has a relationship with food right it's a perception of your relationship with food and how that impacts you. However, there are a lot of people that would really benefit from a really harsh diet, but they do need the support. I sit on the fence of support is optimal. Everybody needs support when they're chugging through treacle, having been in diet culture for many years. But for these participants to go into remission following an 800 calorie diet, would I ever recommend an 800 calorie diet to somebody? No never but can you eat 800 calories if you've got high adipose tissue lose weight yeah but you can't do it on your own and alongside that I think as well it's difficult striking the balance between an authoritative figure as in like a doctor but these had qualified dietitians and nurses right and I'm just going to bring up an example of a client that I had previously, who came to me a couple of years ago now, and was told by her doctor she suffered really badly with like IBS type symptoms and difficulties going to go into the toilet. She felt a lot of pain. She was told by her doctors to just remove carbohydrates to stop eating carbs. That was what she'd been told. She feared carbohydrates big big time. And I was like, right, okay but then you're not getting enough fiber. So then you're not supporting your digestion. So then you're not supporting, your gut microbiome, then you're not getting enough vitamins and minerals, right? How would you feel about trying to incorporate some carbohydrates? I made a really good chat and she was really on board with the process and she started increasing their dietary fiber again. When she finished working with me, she'd never felt as good as she felt. Like her bowel movements were daily, very, very regular. She had no ibs type symptoms anymore Uh, the overall stress on her body was reduced the psychological strain was reduced her relationship with food was phenomenal so if you're going to a gp and taking advice from a gp like you could go into a gp surgery now and be diagnosed with type 2 diabetes and they just go and lose weight they haven't got the nutritional information and like the behavior change aspect because in essence it's behavior change However, these participants, they had a lot of support with their behaviour change and they had a lot of support from dietitians. And if it put them into remission, that's phenomenal. There was like a 23% increase in those diagnosed with type 2 diabetes between 2017 and 2021. And that was people in the UK below the age of 40. So type 2 diabetes is a big player of death in the UK however the one thing that i also want to say now the one thing that i was mm, yeah in this this specific um document that that lisa shared whilst it did say that obesity is a direct player of um is associated with type 2 diabetes there are also people now being diagnosed in a lean phenotype with this disease right because site is not a direct representation now of the diagnosis of this. It's an autoimmune disease, right? And people with high stress levels, people with poor diets, and like we know, stress on the body, send your body out of this window of tolerance. Send your body into this hyper-aroused state, fight-or-flight mode. And now people are chronically stressed, my age, chronically stressed. And over a period of time, if that's something that they're exposed to for years and years and years, which people are, they are being diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. Because they've got this autoimmune system response with the insulin. And which is like a really good follow-up from the question last week, like, And and it also plays very nicely into what Dr. Ritchie said, that your body shape is not directly representative of your health because there are now people in what people would perceive as being healthy through their eye, like what they're healthy, being diagnosed with autoimmune system diseases, type 2 diabetes. But then there are also people in like a larger phenotype, potentially holding more muscle mass that are then at significantly lower risk of developing heart disease, coronary heart disease. like. And I think that in itself just shows how far like this narrative of like smaller is better, how far away we are from that now in society. So you can eat 800 calories and lose weight. like. There is no, you can eat 500 calories and lose weight. However, the relationship with food, the implications, the intention behind the action, if you want to follow the Cambridge diet as an example. um, So the message I put in the group this week, let's talk about that one. So somebody in the office was having a conversation with somebody else and they were going on holiday in two weeks. They were going to do the booty diet. Where they literally just drink coffee, I think, and eat little food, because now the intent behind that action, that's imprisoning. That's seeking external validation from a smaller body to go on holiday, as if you need permission to be smaller to go away. That's feeding societal norms and pressures from diet culture that portrays the message the smaller is better and normalises the deprivation of calories. Now, when she, this person in, in particular goes on holiday, she will just regain the weight. Because the minute you start eating, you regain it. Because all you do is deplete your body of glycogen. Is that a healthy way to lose weight? No. There is no support. Her intent behind her action is imprisoning. She's not empowering herself. She'll go away. And she'll feel exposed at the buffet. The novelty of the food will be so high and she'll fall into all or nothing approaches. She'll come back and she'll just want to die again. The cycle is vicious. And you can see this sort of document, this sort of um, whatever it is, news report, through that tinted lens of of our own experiences. And I've done that for many years. I used to be like, oh my God, I used to be triggered by everybody who went to Slimming World (laughs) just because I knew the implications to be triggered by everybody who would go and over exercise and go in um under restrict and like but everybody's doing the best they can with the knowledge they have not everybody fortunately has the support of someone like me or another coach or the awareness or the understanding or the knowledge or even do you know what sometimes guys the drives the drive to want to improve your relationship with food for a lot of people it's easier to stay where they're at but i argue that staying where you're at is more miserable than making the change but when you've got so it's hard to then gain clarity and understanding of whether you're seeing this through like, oh my God, but they're their poor relationship with food, they are gonna be at high risk. And and yeah, like but that's a subjective level, isn't it? Like I think everybody is at risk when we consider the environment that they're exposed to. And I think sometimes just like unpicking that as well, because it helps you build more resilience with the steps that you are taking and actually acknowledge how far you've come and given yourself that again frequent evidence of the success the successful steps of your journey but like I think as well the, the language that they've used can be triggering for people rapid weight loss here and yeah rapid weight loss does bring considerable weight loss but as long as they've got support that's the most important part because there is if you can't do it alone you can't do it alone um but one other thing like obviously there is bias in this because the study was funded by diabetes uk (laughs) um which is where you'll see like that whole tim spectrum thing and like Now, Stephen Bartlett's invested in Zoe and you're like, there is investment in these things. So there is always going to be bias. So just bear that in mind. But like, broadly speaking, people with type two diabetes, if they are in a larger phenotype would benefit from losing weight. You can't argue that. And they would also benefit from resistance training to help management of blood glucose. But they would need the support, in my opinion. So one other thing that I just want to touch base on was something that I had a really, really awesome conversation with um, just yesterday, actually. With a client who. And I'm only going to tell you about this because I think a lot of you, it can be really. I believe it's so empowering when you've got more, more awareness. And remember, if you listen to this and you're like, Christ, yeah, I resonate with that. Drop me a message. So in particular, we were talking about external validation, namely from the male gaze. And this validation that was coming from the male gaze was then sending this client or the the attention received from the from the male counterpart, whether that was um, positive or negative, and again, that's on a subjective level, it would send her into a spiral of like restriction potentially. Again, like seeking more validation from male counterparts and like looking for that sort of validation, let's call it validation. So, even if it was just like somebody said you looked nice, it's like, oh, this is great. Then, so I need to do more. Or if you, if somebody didn't message you back, oh, this is a, this is a me problem. So, I need to restrict because obviously I'm too fat or I'm not, I'm not sexy enough, but you know, right. So, there's some really cool research about this. And some really cool research that links back to childhood. And it links back to childhood with, if you didn't have a male figure in your life growing up, and you may well have had like your dad with you, but potentially he was out working all the time. So you didn't get that connection with him. You didn't get that love and affection. Cause of course he may have been out um, constantly working or you may not have had your dad around there is some correlation now to then seeking the validation from the patriarchy as we then grow up. So what we was saying to this client in particular was now, because like realistically when we're chatting, she was like, I don't seek, I don't need the validation. Like I'm trying to work on myself and I don't value this person or any stranger's opinion, but in the moment I'm really struggling to sort of gain that clarity and we know that when emotions are high that it's really hard to make decisions. So we were talking about like the the grounding awareness that we can bring to the to the present to the mindfulness. So instead of like um getting out your journal as an example, we were talking about looking back at that little girl and looking back at that little girl all of those years ago and be like, actually it's not them seeking validation because it's it's not that at all. It's actually that Back then, I just wanted some love. I just wanted um, like, my dad with me as an example. I just wanted that that figure there, that compassion, that connection, that attachment. And actually now, as as an adult, it's that looking back at that little girl and being like, ah, she wasn't asking for this male counterpart now. She was just asking for some love. So how can I show her Some love and going back like that. And this was transformative for this wonderful, wonderful client. So I just wanted to go into it a little bit on here as well to just bring some awareness to all of you. And I'm not saying that anybody's sat there thinking, oh, yeah, that's me as well. But a lot of people can resonate with that. A lot of people can get on board with that. And it's even down to like somebody telling you looked good, you look nice, like a male. Like that's seeking validation from the patriarchy. And of course, self-objectification plays into that as well, of what we've been exposed to growing up. But sometimes for people, it can go a little bit deeper. So I just wanted to leave that there as like a little bit of a nugget and an open door for any of you, if you want to talk about it, because you know I'm always here. And again, this plays into our relationship with food, doesn't it? Relationship with yourself. So the more understanding the awareness you have, the greater then you work through your relationship with yourself and your relationship with food. And I think that's it from me today folks so I'm just writing up the webinar for supporting healthy gut microbiome that will be with you before the end of the month I have also done some updates to the check-in I am I'm slowly making some different changes to the questions to just give me the capacity to help you more So of course, going away to these, these uh, lectures, these conferences, I come back with all of this information. (laughs) I don't know, just want to help and help and help. Of course I do. Of course I do. Um, But yeah, I think that's going to be it from me today, everyone. I hope you all have an amazing day. And no, I'm always here. Thank you.